the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Fiona Broom with you today for the Country Half Hour. I'll be with you until five minutes past one o'clock today, just before you go back to the cricket. Well, we've had a couple of livestock, livestock markets already come in this week, and so we're starting to get a bit of a picture of how prices might be shaping up this year. Ahead in the show, we'll dig into the markets a little deeper to find out what they could deliver for 2024. And we've been hearing for a while that veterinarians are increasingly hard to come by in the bush. But today, we'll hear why some folks who swapped the city for the country are now living their best vet lives. As always, the text line is open and I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you're up to today or what you think about anything that we're discussing. 0467 842 is the number there. We're going to head straight to the weather today. We'll cross now to the Weather Bureau. We've got Senior Forecaster Joanna Hughes with us today. G'day, Joanna. G'day, Fiona. How are you going? Good, thanks. How are we looking today in Victoria? Is, is the weather a bit more settled moving out of yesterday or are there still some storms about? Uh, still potential for some storms about, but uh, but comparatively settled um, after a couple of pretty wild, um, wild nights earlier this week. Um, so there's potential for some thunderstorms on the cards this afternoon for northern Victoria. Um, at the moment, we've just got a couple of showers up in the far northwest um, and up in the northeast as well. And otherwise, um, mostly cloudy around the, the southeast, but uh, that's sort of cleared out a little bit now through southern districts, sort of more in central and, and the west. So um, pretty settled for, for most places, except for the, the chance of a, a couple of storms popping up this afternoon, um, but nothing severe expected with those at the moment. Um, in terms of current warnings that we have out, we've still got a couple of flood warnings that are from the, the rainfall we've seen um, in the last week or so. So at uh, the for the Avoca River, we've got minor flooding occurring at Charlton Town um, and the minor flooding is easing um, at Charlton Downstream. That was from some flash flooding that occurred with storms um, overnight on Wednesday night. And then uh, for the Loddon River, we've still got flooding continuing um, downstream of Loddon Weir. Um, and that's expected to sort of remain fairly steady for the next little while. Um, and for the Seven and Castle Creeks, we've got minor flooding possible at Kiala West uh, overnight Friday, uh, so tonight into into Saturday morning. Um, and that's just as the water sort of moves downstream um, further further in the uh, in the catchment there. Um, so uh, actually, I think I might have. Um, said the wrong the wrong thing earlier. It wasn't enough flash flooding for, for Charlton. It was in the in uh, near Euroa that we had the flash flooding. I'm getting my flood warnings confused. But the good news is they're all easing anyway, um, at least for the time being. Um, and, yeah, fairly settled conditions today. And um, heading into tomorrow, we've got um, just some light shower activity around the ranges uh, developing in the afternoon and some, in, some scattered showers about western dis- districts in the afternoon tomorrow as well. Again, with the potential of some thunderstorms, it seems to be the uh, the story of the of the week. Um, but uh, again, the thunderstorms tomorrow are not expected to be severe um, in the western parts of the state. Um, we do have uh, some strong winds picking up around East Gippsland coast tomorrow as well. Um, but that's all we're expecting in terms of warnings for tomorrow. And it's as we head into Sunday that uh, the weather starts to really pick up again. So we've got a 
trough that's lying through South Australia at the moment and that's moving its way into Victoria on Sunday and deepening and forming a low pressure system over northwestern Victoria. So the um, associated rain and storms are expected to move through western districts in the morning and, and make it to central districts in the late morning or into the early afternoon. And there is a potential for heavy rainfall with that system. It's looking to be quite wet, it's sort of dragging down a lot of tropical moisture from, um, from further north in the country over Victoria um, and concentrating that rainfall, that heavy rainfall risk, particularly around north-central parts of the state, um, so around areas like Bento, Shepparton um, and uh, around Orvewodonga as well. Um, and so that's, uh, that's sort of overnight Sunday into Monday for, I guess, the broad-scale rainfall. And then within that, the potential for some isolated uh, thunderstorms that could have uh, heavy to intense rainfall associated um, in sort of small pockets as well um, as that system continues to move across on on Monday. And then it's uh, on Tuesday that that starts to move out and it's just sort of lingering showers and um, and more benign thunderstorms up around the, the northeast on Tuesday. Um, so another another big weather system on our way for that Sunday night um, into Monday period. Yeah, so sounds make like sure you quite can... a bit of rain on the way again. Yeah, absolutely. So we've just got to keep our um, keep your eye out on any warnings that are issued in the coming days for potential flooding impacts from that, and um, uh, for potential strong winds uh, and sort of thunderstorm warnings that may be issued with that as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that Sunday Monday period, and then as we head into the latter part of next week, things do seem to be settling down, and we've got a couple of days where, um, at least at the moment, we don't have any thunderstorms on the forecast um, from Wednesday onwards. So fingers crossed for that. That is good news. Is there any uh, idea yet if there might be some hail um, coming with the weekends and the early early next week? Um, hail isn't looking um, so likely with these storms. It's mainly the risk of, of heavy rainfall um, and damaging winds are the, the two sort of potential um, things that we're, we're keeping an, our eyes on um, in terms of risks. So uh, not expecting hail, um, large hail at at this stage, but um, we'll keep our eyes on the information as it keeps coming in and um, update any any warnings uh, accordingly. And you mentioned uh, coastal waters warning for Gippsland. Any other warnings about? Uh, no, that's that's it for the moment. So just those easing flood warnings um, and then the the um, strong winds around the Gippsland coast for, that for Saturday um, and into Sunday as well. Okay, thank you so much for that, Joanna. No worries at all. Have a good rest of your rest of your country half hour, Fiona. Thanks. Enjoy your weekend. Bye. Take care. Joanna Hughes, their senior forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, from the weather forecast to a forecast of a different kind, we're looking at the livestock markets. 2024 is looking promising for lamb producers with supply and demand evening out and that means stronger prices at the sale yards this week. Uh, at Wednesday's Hamilton sales, lambs went for 30 to $40 a head more than at the final sale a few weeks ago before the Christmas break with all lambs purchased headed for processing rather than the paddock. And Wagga returned similar results on Thursday. They were up 25 to $40 per lamb on average. I spoke with agricultural market analyst Matt Dalgleish to find out what the higher prices could mean for the rest of the year. Yeah, look, it's a good sign uh, early days in the year, but the first two sales were seeing some really good activity, um, buyers across the board and the retail players are also quite active 
Um, so that's part of that reason why we didn't see many lambs back to the paddock. They look like they're getting prepared for Australia Day. Generally, this time of year, we do see a bit of an increase as we head towards Australia Day and the marketing program that MLA do uh, in the lead up to Australia Day has been quite successful last few years. You do get an increase in consumer demand and then that means that it flows through to demand at the sale yard. So even sort of 20 days before um, that national holiday, the demand's already starting to pick up? Yep, that's right. And obviously just coming back from the break, the Christmas New Year break, you know, you've had that lull, so the processors want to get back and firing again. So, you know, that's part of the reason too that it was quite an active group of buyers. There were some bottlenecks at um, the abattoirs and processors last year. How's capacity going at the moment? Yeah, it's improving. It's probably still not 100%. I'd say we're probably 85 to 90% capacity. Um, There's still labour is is still an ongoing issue and also access to accommodation. So if you can find the labourers, depending upon where the abattoir is, if they're in a regional or rural area and, and housing's a bit of a tight situation then that's sometimes difficult to get the, the housing for those for those labourers. Is that something that we're expecting to see across the year across 2024? Hopefully you know the government's working through uh, that problem actively so you know we have seen some benefits coming out of the Pacific uh, labour scheme uh, the palm system yeah and w- why they're continuing to focus on that as an issue in terms of finding labour for agricultural workforce, including abattoirs. Um, you know, we, we're going to continue to kind of be able to get through this. Um, the, the big concern is if we see higher levels of turnoff through this year, um, you know, we might still get the occasional bottleneck depending upon the timing of that turnoff. But um, you know, it is definitely a area we need to keep focused on to make sure we can keep that efficiency in that, in that abattoir supply chain. So what's the forecast for 2024 for the, the sheep and lamb markets in Victoria? I think we're looking for a, a reasonable, well, more positive out, out, outlook than last year. We had a bit of a correction in, in the market, obviously, um, that was you know, somewhat expected given the very high prices we had prior to that correction. The big, the big test is going to be, though, what happens with the weather as we lead into the autumn break. Um, we've had this El Nino forecast that has been breaking down and, and that's common over summer that, that it does weaken. Um, so the big thing will be whether that reforms as we progress through 2024. Yeah, and, and it's the autumn break that'll give us the clue as to what's happening with that El Nino reforming or not. If we go to a much more normal season of rainfall, then I think we're going to um, have a pretty, pretty good season regards pricing and, and see pricing continue to increase as we head into the middle of the year. And what can consumers expect from lamb prices this year? There was a, a bit of concern last year that um, sale yard prices weren't matching up to shelf prices. So what, what can we see this year? Yeah, we have seen some deflationary pressure in red meat, both for beef and for lamb at the supermarket. There is a bit of a lag in that the pricing at the retail level does take a bit of time to catch up to what's happening at the sale yard. Um, and we have seen the last three quarters there has been... You know, reducing pricing at the retail level for red meat. Um, that's probably set to continue into the first half of this year. Yeah, so I think that, you know, from a consumer side, we shouldn't get too many uh, kind of inflationary price shocks when it comes to red meat. Okay, and turning to cattle, what's going on with the, the cattle markets at the moment? The the Eki started to pick up a bit at the end of last year, but then it did see another drop? Yeah, that's right. We have seen... Um, uh, there's only been one main sale 
uh, in Victoria. Lee and Gatha was yesterday. Uh, their numbers were quite low, so it's, I wouldn't take too much out of the pricing of that just yet, just given the, the thin volumes going through. Um, when you compare what's happening, though, in the mountain calf sales, that's, that's been progressing the last few days. Uh, I think we've had about 1,700 head go through. Uh, no, sorry, say 17,000 head. And that's still got another day and a half to go. But if you compare the pricing from this time last year, we're, we're pretty much at similar pricing levels, maybe a fraction softer. But, it, you know, you're talking heavy steers between 1,200 to 1,300 head and the lightest is 900 to 1,000. So they're, they're fairly comparable prices to what we were getting this time last year for those mountain car sales. So that, that's a good sign given this year we had where pricing was a bit softer for cattle, the fact that we opened that market um, in a reasonably robust way and similar to last year's pricing, that, that kind of bodes well. We've heard from agents that um, the, those wiener calf sales have been positive, but we have heard that they've recommended that really it's best for vendors to temper their expectations on prices. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, we're not going to see like, gonna, the big pricing we saw in previous years. Um, so we're in for a more moderate, longer-term average pricing in terms of even, when, even if pricing starts to climb as we go through into winter, um, I don't think we'll see the peaks we saw those record levels uh, when we're in the thick of the rebuild stage of the herd. Um, but in saying that, we, you know, we are going to probably see a, a better outcome this year than what we saw last year. I don't think we're going to see the, the, the decline in pricing we saw uh, through last year. Um, unless, unless we go into a significant drought again, if, if that El Nino reforms and we have a drier 2024 than it's expected... Um, and we get maybe those bottlenecks in the processing, if we get a bit of turning off, then that could put some price pressure on the market. But I suspect we're going to be more likely to have a, a more average season and, 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 a, and a reasonable kind of um, price pattern, uh, you know, slightly higher than this time last year. In terms of trends or market changes, is there anything that people should be watching out for this year? I think that autumn break, so when we see the Bureau forecast, as we head into autumn, that's going to be crucial as to you know what they're forecasting, and then obviously what happens. You know, um, sometimes the accuracy can't, you know, is a little bit tricky that time of year. But I think that'll be the first sign. You know, that three-month outlook that the bureau puts out. What's the likelihood of having a wetter season or a more average season or a dry season? I think that's what everyone will be looking for. And in terms of the consumer side of things, are there any trends on that side that you expect to see to sort of flow through to production? Probably less in the domestic space. I think the interesting thing will be how things develop in the US uh, in terms of what they're doing with their herd over there. Um, They're looking like they're about to move into a rebuild phase and and their supply of beef and other red meat is um, getting reduced so that they are looking actively for imported product and Australia is a key player there. So we could see some strong demand for both sheep meat and beef from Australia to the US. And the other big one's China, just, you know, how they're re-engaging again. Uh, we're seeing a, a thawing out of the, of the dip- diplomatic issues and the trade issues we had the last few years. And that's opening up markets to things like barley and beef and wine. Uh, so I think that's quite a positive outcome and we could see China re-emerge into 2024 as a big player in that red meat space uh, from Australian exports. Anything else in terms of international markets that we should be keeping an eye on? Uh, the Japanese market would be another one. They've had quite a soft year last year. They had a reasonably high level of 
um, beef in cold store. So that kept their demand under wraps. It'll be a matter of how they've been working through that cold store because uh, as, as the US start to go tighten up, uh, they're going to be able to less available US product to go to Japan and they're our main competitor into Japan for Australian beef. So that's the other aspect that if the Japanese start to look uh, for product and need to come to Australia, then they might, they might re-engage again if they've been working through those cold stores. So that could be a, another positive for our export market. So what's your final hot tip for the year? The weather pattern scenario, that's, that's the key for this year, I think. And that'll, that'll set us up for either a, really, you know, a better year or, or, or you know, maybe more price pressure, depending upon how that uh, El Nino shapes up or whether it disappears entirely. That's Matt Zalgleish, director of the market analytics company, episode three there. Um, Gus on the text line saying, good to hear that markets are hopefully going to pick up. Good for everyone who was bought in lambs over spring and summer. Thanks for that message there, Gus. On the text line, 0467 842 What do you reckon about that hot tip there about the weather? Does that sound about right to you? Well, turning to uh, livestock companies and mining billionaires Andrew and Nicola Forrest have increased their stake in Australia's largest cattle company, AACO. The Forrest's investment company, Tatarang, has been buying into AACO over the past few years and its shareholding reached just over 19% this week. AACO, that's the Australian agricultural company, owns and operates the largest cattle herd in the country with more than 430,000 head spread across 7 million hectares of land. It's about 1% of Australia's land mass. Well, Tatarang recently bought out the hat company Akubra and agricultural investment advisor Tim Faulkner told reporter Dan Fitzgerald that Tatarang's greater holding in AACO reflects their desire to manage iconic Australian businesses. They've been building their stake gradually over time and more recently in the last couple of days they've increased from approximately 18.5% to 19.5%. So they're very close to the 19.9% maximum threshold um, in Australia where thereafter that if they are going to continue buying shares, they'll have to either creep, which is a slow acquisition of um, up to 3% every six months, or, or make a takeover offer. Yeah, so how significant is it that the Tatarang is now right on that threshold? Well, I think it's, um, it, it is significant, but I don't want to overplay it because um, he has been building his stake over time, and, and the recent acquisition is only of another 1%, so it's most likely that um, they were approached those... That, that line was on the market and, and they decided to, to take it just to continue to build their um, stake in the company, which um, they've made very clear that they see value in as, as part of their strategy of um, building a portfolio of, of large-scale Australian agricultural assets. Yeah, and do you have any more insight into yeah, what exactly Tatarang and the forest see in a company like AACO? Well, obviously it's one of Australia's um, largest agricultural assets. Um, so for somebody like um, Tui who has um, a, a strategy of, of building a portfolio in Australian agriculture, um, it's an obvious one for, for him to invest in. Um, he's got funds that he, he's deploying in the sector and, and this allows him to, to do that. Um, more broadly, I think, I don't know what their, particularly what their strategy is, but um, oftentimes um, 
ASX-listed agricultural assets um, like AACO, which are an aggregation of a, of a number of um, high-quality properties, attract interest from people like Twiggy who think, well, it's trading at a discount to its net tangible asset um, backing. Um, that's because it's an aggregation of, of properties and it's managed by a large corporate, which has a lot of um, corporate overheads attaching to that. Um, and over time... Um, as the as the nature of the business progresses and its shareholders and Joe Lewis is there through Tavistock with over fifty one percent, he he may think that um, there is an opportunity that um, you know in the medium to long term future that um, that, that Joe um, may move on and and um, you you may be able to break um, AACO up and and realise that discount um, that that currently applies as a, as a listed company. AACO hasn't paid a dividend to its shareholders for about 15 years or so. Do you think that would be something that would concern the forests? No, I, I don't. I mean, um, the, the fact that Twiggy's in, increasing his um, his stake in the company um, tells me that it tells me that it's not. Um, I, I think he he knows um, agricultural assets very well. Um, these are assets that appreciate over time. It's uh, an investment in land rather than an investment in the, the operating business that's going to pay a dividend. He has a very long time horizon and, and he's got the funds to, to deploy in these types of businesses. At what point, if the investment did increase, would Tatarang be able to put a director on the board? Well, that, that's a, a matter for, for Tatarang and, and AACO. Um, he, he's at a level now where um, there are many companies... Um, that, uh, that would see that it's appropriate for, the, for them to have a, a director on the board. Um, but that's, that's really a matter between the, the shareholder and, and the rest of the board. Tim Faulkner, a director with Kidder Williams Financial Consultants, speaking there with Dan Fitzgerald, and Tatarang was contacted for comment. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. I'm Fiona Broom and it is four minutes to one o'clock. Well, many rural communities are struggling with access to veterinary services. It's such an issue that it's become the subject of a parliamentary inquiry in New South Wales, which has heard about the challenges of recruiting vets to regional areas and keeping them when many are overworked and burnt out. But as Emily Doak reports, there are some success stories of vets who've swapped city life to treat animals in the bush. At a farm in southern New South Wales, veterinarian Michelle Noga is peering intently into a horse's mouth, taking note of its teeth. And your canines have been worn down. Vets are in short supply here, especially those with specialist skills like equine dentistry, and Michelle can travel thousands of kilometres a week to and from her home base of Griffith. But it's not just horses she's treating. Every day is different. So I could work with an alpaca yesterday, um, a chicken the day before, horses today, it could be the zoo tomorrow. You never get bored, you're always learning. And the lack of being able to, I guess, refer easily like in the cities means you're doing a lot more for people and their animals than you do in the city. In looking at the work that you do, what do you enjoy most about it? At the people side. So I've got some really lovely regular clients. I've got clients who are in their 70s and 80s who will have a towel on the table, a cup of coffee and tea. They remember how I like it. Um, it's just the relationships you build is really different. Growing up in Sydney, Michelle always wanted to work as a vet and was lured to the region by love. I've always wanted to work regionally. Um, I had planned to go in northern New South Wales, but actually met my now husband in my final year. 
So he's a farmer in Griffith and it was a no-brainer just to move and be part of this community. She says working in the bush has many advantages to practising in the city. I think you learn a lot more. I've got friends who graduated from university, went to a city clinic and they still hadn't done a desexing in a year or they hadn't done a caesarean. Um, whereas in the country, you get thrown in the deep end straight up. You learn skills that you don't learn in the city. Gunshot wounds, for example, you never get to see. Snake bites, that sort of thing, are things that I guess day-to-day in country practice that you don't get to manage in the city. I think their skills are better developed and quicker. Another city-born vet, Sophia Johnson, wanted to work with livestock and moved to the small town of Deniloquin during the pandemic. For better or worse, COVID I think really taught a lot of people how to stay connected, um, especially in the virtual age. So for me, yes, I was moving to somewhere rural, but you know, gosh, I don't miss that traffic. I don't miss the cost of living. For me, it's been a really smooth transition. These two are in a minority. The Australian Veterinary Association says more than 60% of vets registered in New South Wales work in the city, 30% in inner regional areas and just 8% in rural and remote areas. A New South Wales parliamentary inquiry is examining the workforce shortage and its chairman, Mark Benassiak, says recruiting vets to the country is a key issue. The less vets are out there, the more pressure it places on those vets that are, are there already. The tyranny of distance and the, the amount of travel that they had to do to get across, I guess, their their range places extra pressure on them, which then obviously increases the risk of burnout for those existing veterinarians that we do have. He says opportunities to entice veterinary graduates to practice in rural areas are being explored. I think one of the big things that's come through quite strongly is the need for hex relief and some sort of incentive uh, where if you do some time out in, in rural and regional New South Wales that you do get a, a certain percentage uh, deducted from from your hex. APM Animal Health is a major provider of veterinary services in regional Australia, with 78 clinics across five states and employing more than 330 vets. Managing Director Chris Richards says the business has had to adapt to offer new graduates the career development and lifestyle available in the city. Particularly uh, younger vets are very focused on not being burnt out, have a high focus on ensuring they have a good work-life balance. You know, that also involves our, you know, our flexible workplace programs where we currently have over 80% of our vets on such a program where they're working four-day weeks or um, nine-day fortnight. New South Wales Farmers Association is calling for greater partnerships between government and private vets in rural areas to make practices more sustainable. Association member and vet Robin Alders says it will also be important in managing animal disease outbreaks. It is certainly nationally recognised that um, if there's an emergency response and they have to have a surge in workforce, that there will be contracts issued to private vets. But we'd like to suggest that this be an ongoing situation so that the, the private practitioners know that they've got a contract, they'll have a certain income each year. In terms of recruitment, she believes there should be more support for farm kids to be able to get into veterinary courses. I think the short term may well be looking at special entrance requirements to allow students from rural areas that are clearly extremely intelligent and that did reasonably well in their ATAR but demonstrate that commitment to coming back to rural areas, maybe setting aside a couple of places for them each year. Back in southern New South Wales, Sophia Johnson has this message for vets about working in the regions. There's so much that can be done these days in our country towns and some of these vet clinics are even better equipped than most city clinics. I do think as well that 
people think that this, the country is the sticks and if you're not used to it then I think that there's this really big um, potentially misconception that you know country towns are potentially a bit backward or poorly resourced or you know not able to get that quality of life and it's not true I mean we've got the internet these days we've got really good you know connectivity with our peers in other um, cities and towns it's really not the same transition it was probably even 10 years ago uh, so I think give it a go you know what's the worst that can happen you get that experience and you've got some stories to tell at the pub maybe Sophia Johnson a vet in southern New South Wales ending that report from Emily Doak <laughs> Just the one market today, Hamilton Sheep with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Fiona. Hamilton agents for their first sheep sale this year yarded 14,000 sheep where the quality was good, with a good mixture of both heavy and medium weights through to lightweights. The majority of crossbred ewes, with merinos representing about 10% of the offering, with all weights and grades available. The majority of processors were present and active in a market which is stronger by $15 to $20 per head over all classes of sheep compared to the final markets of 2023. The general run of mutton realised between 200 to 250 cents a kilogram carcass weight to average between 200 and 220 cents. Crossbred ewes are sold to a top of $81 with the well-covered merino ewes selling to 68. Merino weathers topped at 72 and hoggets sold to a top of $92 per head. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. And that is all the time we have for today on the Country Half Hour. Normal programming will resume on Monday the 8th of January. The Country Hour will be back at noon. The Rural Reports will also be back with you at 6.15 on Monday. It's five past one. Back to the cricket.